Welcome to Nudge Talk Asia, behavioral science insights that improve business and lives. Here's your host, Paolo Mercado. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Nudge Talk Asia from Ogilvy Consulting, bringing you behavioral insights that improve business and lives. I'm Paolo Mercado, Vice President of Behavioral Science at Ogilvy Consulting. Today, I am very excited and honored to have as our guest the founder of Ogilvy's Behavioral Science Practice and Vice Chairman of Ogilvy UK, Rory Sutherland. Welcome, Rory. Oh, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Rory is a highly sought-after speaker and thought leader in the world of applied behavioral science and how we can use it to develop creative ideas that may not make sense but actually work. Rory is the author of two books, The Wiki Man and the best-selling book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas Which Don't Make Sense. Before founding Ogilvy's Behavioral Science Practice, Rory was a creative director at Ogilvy for over 20 years. His extensive work in direct marketing has shown how little nudges can help move people to action with simple behavioral insights. Rory has been president of the IPA, and he has been chair of the judges at Cannes for direct marketing and has been a featured speaker at TED Global. He writes regular columns for The Spectator, Market Leader in Impact, and for Wired. He is passionate about the behavioral science of mobility, and just as we spoke about a few moments ago, he is an advocate of the electric car revolution. So again, welcome, Rory. For our topic today, we're going to be talking about weird science. Uh, And no, that's not the 80s teen movie for those old enough to remember. It's a question I often encounter. Is behavioral science too focused on Western, educated, industrialized, rich and developed cultures? Or to put it in another way, are the principles and practices of behavioral science relevant to Asia? Do Western nudges work in the East or are Asians in fact wired differently? But before we dive into that, Rory, I'd like to ask how you evolved from an agency creative into a thought leader in behavioral science. So how did you transition from creativity to science, or is that even a, let's say, a paradox? Probably a large amount of luck, to be honest, which was just happy timing, which is I started in direct marketing. In fact, I spent most of my working life as a direct marketing copywriter. And if you work in direct marketing because you have results, and the results are often surprising or highly disproportionate, you pretty quickly realise that there's a lot going on in human perception and behaviour which isn't really accounted for or explained by standard economic or indeed standard advertising models. And I always used to call that the missing science. There has to be a science of the quirks and unexpected oddities of human behaviour. But as far as I knew, there wasn't one. And then in about 2008, 2009, two things happened simultaneously. I was appointed president of the IPA in London, which is the, it's kind of like the British equivalent of the four A's. It's the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising is the full title. And as a president, you have a two-year term and you have to have an agenda. So I was in that wonderful position. It's rather like having to write an article or having to write a pitch deck. When you're forced to write something, it clarifies the mind wonderfully. Mm. So I was in that wonderful thing where I needed something new and interesting to say. And more or less simultaneously, 
I discovered both online and through a few economics books I'd bought out of curiosity that there was in fact a name for this science and it was called behavioural economics or had become called behavioural economics and I learnt finally that those very things that had absolutely beguiled me as a direct marketing copywriter when the results would come back and would always show some very, very strange powerful effect between test and control that in fact people had in fact won Nobel Prizes for this stuff, okay? And the great thing was I, I was in the position then through a happy kind of coincidence of timing to combine my huge interest and enthusiasm in this area with a platform on which I could actually promote it. Mm. And that's really how it happened. I, I think there was undoubtedly a huge gap to be filled in that you had these two adjacencies, the academic community and the practitioners, and the great thing was, because as practitioners, we knew quite a lot instinctively. There's a wonderful quote from Amos Tversky, who is Daniel Kahneman's partner, that what Daniel and I do is we take the things instinctively known by used car salesmen and advertising executives, and we study them in a rigorous scientific way. And we had a huge amount of knowledge and anecdotal knowledge, which in fact made us quite useful and interesting to them. And so one of the great things is, and the Ogilvy name doesn't hurt there, is I was able to be quite instrumental in forging bridgeheads between these two previously completely isolated communities. And I describe myself not really as a behavioural scientist because uniquely, practically, in my team, I have no qualifications in the field. But I always describe myself as a behavioural science impresario, that my job is to simply make this study much, much more salient in how agencies and other businesses solve problems, not to do the thing which I think management consultancies do, which is you pretend everything is a kind of Newtonian physics problem and you solve for the optimal. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's an upside and a downside to admitting psychology into your solution set. The downside is, is that it's kind of messy, slightly inconsistent, there are no universal laws, and there probably isn't a single right answer. Mm -hmm. That's the downside, and that's why people traditionally shy away from it. The upside is, precisely because of the asymmetries and disproportionalities in human psychology and perception, you can quite often achieve an extraordinary difference through a very, very small stimulus. Mm. One of the things that you've been very provocative about, Rory, in your talks and in your books is how business people should go beyond rational, logical thinking espoused by not only economists, but market research. My own experience working on the marketing side in Asia is that I often see a contrast between very methodical, data-driven, over-tested strategic decision-making of multinationals versus the gut feel, seat of the pants strategies of many Asian businesses and business leaders. This is true, especially with a lot of iconic, charismatic business leaders. So does that mean that CEOs that really trust their gut feel are more true to behavioral science than, you know, being very left brain methodical about all of the decision making that CEOs do? There's an interesting question there, because it's worth noting that we only notice the CEOs whose gut feel paid off. Ah, okay. In defense, yes, okay. Yes. Because there are an awful lot of people who start businesses or run businesses on the basis of bad gut feel, and those people aren't around anymore. So we've got to be very careful. Nassim Taleb, who I'm quite friendly with, makes the point that it's very easy to look at restaurant, running a restaurant, going, God, look at all these successful restaurants. It must be easy running a restaurant. Mm -hmm. But he points out that what you don't see 
is the seven restaurants that failed often in the same location as a now successful restaurant. Mm. He says the graveyard of failed restaurants is a very quiet place. And the graveyard of failed instincts is a very quiet place. But, and this is the big but, it is true to say that gut instinct can take you to places which logic will never take you to. Mm. And so when you do discover something through either very, very well-honed gut instinct, and some business people, I think, have it, you know, they have an instinct as to what the customer really wants, and they have a very, very good feel for ideas that might work, often just built up through experience or just through, you know, native talent. And the great advantage that does have is when you don't have to, I think owner-run businesses have this advantage, or businesses run by tyrants, which is when you don't have to justify everything in advance on the grounds of sequential logic, it frees you to go into places where your competitors won't go. Now, sometimes there's a reason why your competitors don't go there. And there's a wonderful phrase there, which is, there may be a gap in the market, but is there a market in the gap? Okay. Ah. And, you know, there, there are certain things which there may be a complete untapped consumer demand for something, but it may be that the reason that market doesn't exist is because fundamentally nobody mm -hmm. wants it. Mm -hmm. There's a limit to the market for what you might call mid-priced air travel because most people will adopt one of two mentalities i want to get there as comfortably as possible or i want to get there as cheaply as possible <laughs> and so you know that market who says i'll pay 20 percent more for 20 percent more legroom it exists but it's not as big as you might think so i think there's something very interesting however i think those people who make what you might call a leap in other words they're prepared to make a decision not exclusively on the basis of inference from pre-existing data. Mm -hmm. First of all, they have an advantage because actually the data comes from the past and the future is different from the past. Okay. Sometimes events so happen that an idea, I always give the example of Zoom, which I think is an absolutely brilliant product. But Zoom would have probably had another five years of relatively slow growth if the pandemic hadn't happened. So sometimes you just get lucky because, you know, unexpected black swan events just throw advantage in your lab. And sometimes, of course, it's because the very same logic that drives one competitor also drives all your other competitors. And an over-reliance on sequential logic, particularly when people have access to the same kind of data and the same, they're all using the same kind of metrics, okay, it tends to make businesses more and more alike, which does generally create an opportunity, a kind of blue ocean opportunity somewhere else. I mean, one thing I think that happens to a dangerous degree is businesses all get fixated on the same metrics for comparative purposes. In other words, how do I compare myself with my competitors? Well, we'll find these things that are easy to measure. And they then become all optimised around the same narrow set of metrics and targets. Mm -hmm. And actually, what often happens, I make this point about train punctuality, you know, which is, don't get me wrong, I don't want to live in a world where trains arrive completely at random, okay? But beyond a certain point, consumers go, look, this level of punctuality is kind of okay. What I really want is onboard catering and comfy seats. 
<laughs> and so the person who ignores the metrics which generally pervade the category and decides to say, I'm going to sell this on the basis of something completely different. Red Bull, the example I always give, actually doesn't taste very nice. You know, you know all these soft drink manufacturers probably agonising about blind taste tests. And yet Red Bull, which does appallingly in taste tests, is an extraordinarily successful drink. Yes, I think there is there is a certain value in the fact that a degree of, if not pure gut instinct, at least the readiness to make an imaginative or hypothetical leap does actually allow you to zag when everybody else zigs. Yeah. And I, I think that's so often forgotten, by the way, by economists, because the other thing that happens is that what's important in a market is not a constant. So you probably remember, as I do, we're old enough to remember when there was this period where people were obsessed with miniaturising mobile phones. Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> you know, how small is your phone? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the smartphone comes out, the whole thing changes. Yes, it reverses. And Apple is now charging a premium for a phone that's bigger than its standard phone. And so, in many cases, I think, the things along which people compete a, arbitrary, and B, their temporary phenomena, you know, what people care about. Mm -hmm. let, let me just jump to a question on nudges and cultural differences. It's on the question of whether nudges are universal or nudges work differently depending on the culture. So, for example, to use one favorite framework that Chris Graves, our colleague, uses on worldviews, cultural cognition. And one of these scales is individualism versus communitarianism, whether you put priority on you know, the rights of the individual or the good of the community. And when we contrast countries like the U.S., which is on the extreme of the individualism scale, yeah. versus most of Asia, which is actually on the communitarian scale, so do nudges work differently? For example, social norming, does that work differently in an individualistic society versus a communitarian society? Yeah, it's fair to say that the whole Anglo-Saxon world is kind of off the charts on individualism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it isn't just Western industrial and the individualism question, you could almost add kind of in Anglo-Saxon. Mm. The one country that's quite populous and relatively high, I think, on individualism is India, you know, non-Anglo-Saxon country. And by the way, I mean, the first thing we've got to say is the term Asia and Asian is absurd, mm. okay? Because it's very, it's very strange because it's politically unacceptable to use the term Oriental. Yes, it is. Um, it's um, you know, huge um, continent. Uh, uh, you know, understandably. <laughs> but Asian strikes me as just as heinous because all these continents are is how the Romans defined the world from being in the centre of the Mediterranean. So Europe is north, Africa south, Asia East. Yes. That's it. Okay. <laughs> the differences between different Asian cultures and indeed different African cultures are going to be absolutely enormous. Between different tribal groups, you'll find cultural differences. Mm. Now, what's interesting there is I think I think there are universals. Okay. I mean, I think some form of status seeking is a universal. Mm. You know, I don't think there are many people who are happy to be, uh, you know, who are absolutely immune to considerations of status, respect and so on. But how you seek to obtain that respect or maintain it will vary according to cultural norms. Now, those like the human brain's instinct for status, both of those things have evolved, but probably at the level of the human brain there are more similarities and at the level of culture there are going to be more differences mm, yes. and sometimes what it is it's the same instinct but it finds a very different expression i mean there have been groups where you know people bound the feet 
you know, children because small feet were considered hugely attractive. You know, there have been people who've had enormous, you know, uh, brass rings around their necks. And that's patently, you know, a kind of localised cultural norm. At the same time, you know, the desire perhaps to be attractive, to take care of... I don't know a culture where people, you know, are completely indifferent to their children and their children's welfare, you know. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I tend to do is look at it through an evolutionary lens and say, does this actually make sense? Loss aversion, for example, looked at through uh, an evolutionary lens kind of makes sense, okay? And I think there have been experiments which show slight cultural differences in this. But nonetheless, I think it's fair to say that's going to be fairly common. I crowdsource from our teams in Asia a few questions, Rory, that I'd like you to weigh in on. And one of them has to do with the topic of uh, taking care of your mental health in a professional setting. Mm. Now, it seems that in more developed countries, there's greater acceptance of taking mental health days or saying that you need a bit more personal self-care. Whereas in Asia, in some of the interviews that we've done, there is, in fact, great hesitation, a great hesitation to admit this, not because of the fear of being labeled as crazy, but the fear of being seen as a weak link in the organization. So how do we manage a situation like that in an Asian context where people are thought that you got to carry your weight, you got to push through, everybody needs to have grit, you know, so... Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, that will be interesting because it's worth noting that that very same stigma attached to conversations around that subject would have applied in the UK 15, 20 years ago. Mm. They would have applied, it would have applied in the US 20 or 30 years ago. The US was always much more open about having an analyst. Mm. Generally, people in Britain, well, if they have an analyst, they still don't talk about it yeah. very much. Yeah. A, a therapist in other terms. So yeah. the, the therapist, sorry, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Generally, it's a developing trend that people are more open about it. I mean, there's an interesting question which I once asked when we had all this conversation about mental health days and well-being and yoga mats in the office, which I said... In the 1970s or 1960s, people who are pressurised at work would have unionised, mm -hmm. OK, and they would have collectively demanded shorter working hours and more money, OK? That's true. Now, strangely and culturally, you can't break ranks now within a capitalist organisation and do that. I mean, you could argue it's because very cleverly companies, by paying everybody individually and by individualising the workforce, have made collective bargaining of that kind kind of impossible. I noticed the same thing, by the way, which is that you know, after the pandemic, when people refused to go back into the office five days a week, that was effectively a kind of strike. <laughs> Okay, mm. right. It was in some ways a form of collective bargaining, which is I could never make a stand on flexible working on my own before the pandemic because I would have stood out as a weak link, as you said. Yes. But now when everybody else or at least a majority of my co-workers are saying the same thing, look, two or three days a week, I can get more done at home than I can in the office and I find it pleasanter and it saves me money. It's much, much more difficult for the employer to push back because it would lead to mass defection. I think you're right, though, that in Asia you would have that fear still. And that could be a collective individual thing. It could simply be a time-based trend. Different forms of behavioural change and attitudinal change play out at very, very different speeds in different countries and cultures. We are 
living in very high inflationary times, which is bringing about a cost of living crisis almost everywhere. How could behavioral insights help in this age where we are dealing with a cost of living crisis? And this is not Asia specific, I guess this is more, what role can behavioral science play in a time like this? Well, the first thing is the essential role it plays, which is government tends to solve problems because it's full of lawyers who talk to economists. Mm. Government tends to solve problems in the wrong order, which is compulsion or legislation is the first weapon in the armory or the first tool in the toolkit they usually reach for. Then they go to incentives and then they go to persuasion or what you might call design solutions. Mm. Now, there are two issues there. One, I argue that's the wrong way around. You should see what you can persuade people to do, and then when that fails, maybe you need to pay them, okay? Yeah. And then if that fails, maybe you need to create some sort of compulsion. It's worth noting that legislation, by the way, partly works by just creating social norms very quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the Greek, the ancient Greek word for law, nomos, is exactly the same as the ancient Greek word for custom, which is nomos. <laughs> okay. But nonetheless, you know, there are certain behaviours which you can't legislate legislate for. You can't legislate to get people to do something they can't afford, mm-hmm. for example. That's one point. The second point is actually legislation and economic incentives tend to be blunt tools. And there's a great phrase of Mark Ritson's where he says, averages are the enemy of the marketer. Mm. Marketers are much less interested in average values because the average customer may not exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have to look at what makes the human experience different either because of the psychology of the consumer varies or the context within which they're operating varies. And, you know, there probably are psychological differences in different parts of the world in some respects, but there are also huge contextual differences in terms of affordability. And actually, how the rich and how the poor will respond to a cost of living crisis, of course, is enormously different. Because in the case of the rich, you've got lots and lots of of discretionary income which you can simply you know, effectively substitute. Yeah. And the poor can't, because certain certain forms of energy expenditure are pretty much essential to survival. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the most important things we can do is, first of all, we look at things through the consumer's own lived and experienced and perceived lens. If you can change the perception, you change the emotional response, you change the behaviour. And quite often that's done through perceptual means, or messaging or signaling or reframing, for example, not through, say, compulsive or uh, incentive means. Mm -hmm. Most problem solvers tend to have one particular scale at which they try and operate. And what we have to learn to do as behavioural scientists, we need to look at the societal questions because those have a bearing on behaviour. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the biggest friction on behavioural change comes from societal pressures. Mm -hmm. And we also need to be free to go right down to the level of individual last mile behaviour and say, is there something we can do right at the last mile which will also contribute to this solution? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's that freedom to travel through the different realms one, different parts of the funnel, but also different parts of just general scale. I'll put it in a sentence, actually. All behavioural scientists have got to become complexity experts as well. We've got to actually understand complex systems, science, feedback loops, 
asymmetries. We need to consider all those things. We can't just say, let's clunk this. And what economics does is it chooses a single representative agent, okay? Mm -hmm. And it takes basically the average of the population and treats that person as if they're representative of the whole population and what's good for the average person is good for everybody. And I was talking about this with something to do with price. And I said, look, actually, it's only rich people who are wealth maximizers. If even in Britain, right, never mind, you know, pretty rich country, even in Britain, if you're at the bottom 25% of the income distribution, your life is actually a cash flow problem. It's not a wealth problem. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yes. And, and you know, the mindset of someone who sees life as a cash flow problem, and that's why, obviously, you know, Unilever, for example, will sell individual sachets of of fabric conditioner or detergent yes. in developing markets because it's a, it's a cash flow problem. Yeah, it would be cheaper and more efficient and in a perfect world, everybody would pe- you know get better value by buying large bottles one at a time. But if you do that, then a whole swathe of your market can't buy your product at all. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's one of the things we must be differentially good at because so many other disciplines are so bad at it. I'm very optimistic for behavioral science in Asia and the level of interest and expertise in India, for example, is off the scale. Mm. You also have very, very interesting pockets, I think, in smaller countries. Australia and New Zealand are obviously very interesting. And then you have weird places like Singapore, which are, in a sense, the perfect test beds Mm. for some of these ideas, because they're places of a size where you can actually test things with a much greater level of sort of subtlety than you can do if you're trying purely to operate at the national scale. Yes. Thank you very much, Rory, for all of your insight and being very generous with your time. Thank you so much. Well, next year, I hope to meet you in Manila as well. That'll be a fantastic joy. That would be absolutely great. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rory. And to our listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to the show today, make sure you subscribe and be on the lookout for the new episodes wherever you find your podcasts. And while you're at it, please rate the show and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Paolo Mercado, and this has been Nudge Talk Asia from Ogilvy Consulting.